Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. My name is Guy of Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined as always by Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker. Hello, Guy. And special guest tonight, Sean Walker from Simple Cove. Ah, oh, thanks for having me. First time on the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we're really glad to have you on this time, Sean. I've been waiting. <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspective on how we get things done in our own shops. And just to let you know, we do have a Patreon account. And right now we have one level and we're just simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this awesome podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. With that being said, I think let's get right into it. And Hui, you've got the first question. All right. This question is from Andrew and he's building a a run of chairs, a a run of side chairs. And he's asking, uh, I'm in the design phase. My question is about the necessity of lower stretchers for durability. I'd like these chairs to last for decades at least. And my kids, nephews, are maniacs. Do lower stretchers on a side chair add measurable strength, or are the mortise and tenon joints for the seat apron sufficient on their own? I love your podcast. Thanks very much. So the short answer to that is I believe that a good mortise and tenon joint on its own for the seat apron is more than sufficient depending on what kind of chair you have. So for instance, like I, I, I built a, a run of arts and crafts chairs. And so the legs are, are pretty significant. They're about an inch and a half thick, uh, inch and a half square. Now, if you were doing like Windsor chairs where the mortise, uh, the, the spindle legs are going directly into uh, the seat, then I would say, mm, I would probably add like a stretcher or something like that because that's the only sort of joint that's holding everything together. The fact that you've got an apron and if you've got good solid, maybe like a double mortise and tenon or nice beefy mortise and tenon, uh, I think that will be sufficient. But if you're worried about, you know, the chair racking at all, but you don't really particularly like the look of a stretcher, you could also add corner blocks. That's a possibility. And uh, corner blocks add a significant amount of durability to a chair from racking. Before I talk more about this, I want to go ahead and uh, add you guys to the conversation. I know, Sean, you actually use stretchers in your bar stools, correct? Yeah, I did. Mainly because I felt the legs were awfully long and not really beefy. Uh, So I Mm -hmm. threw some stretches there. And plus, I did it for um, their tall bar stools for, uh, I forgot how tall it is, a 40-inch tall bar top. Uh, so I did it for your feet, just for comfort. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, those those are pr- that's significantly longer legs than what I have for a side chair, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that would make sense. But yeah, as you say, um, depending on the the design of it, I think you nailed it on the other aspects of um, it. All comes down to the design and and the the thickness of your stock. Yeah, I might disagree a little bit with some of that. I think for the taller chairs, it's a it's a must. But even for the mm-hmm. shorter chairs, it really adds to the strength to have the, uh, the the stretchers down low for the racking. Chairs are not like a kitchen table. Kitchen tables actually do not, you know, everybody's concerned about, well, I got to have mortise and tenons because it has 600 pounds of holding weight versus 300 pounds with a biscuit. Who cares? You're not going to put 300 pounds on a, on, a, on a tabletop. On a chair... You can get some pretty large people sitting on chairs. 
But but even then, I mean, if you get a, a an average male at you know 175 pounds or 150 pounds, whatever the, the, the it is, and they sit on there and they they twist a little bit this way, they twist a little bit that way. There is a mm-hmm. heck of a lot of stress being put on those joints. And the bottom stretchers really add a tremendous amount of strength to a chair. Myself making chairs, I always put stretchers on the bottom, regardless. I know there's chair designs out there that don't have stretchers on them. And those are usually ones that don't typically last that long, that, that get loose after a couple of years of actual use. So... That's my take on it. Now, what about uh, some of the different arrangements? Because uh, I would imagine that uh, using, like, for instance, a side chair or designing a side chair, having the stretcher uh, much lower would maybe hinder or uh, get in the way of your feet sort of uh, kicking back while you're eating, your heels sort of hitting that stretcher. You put you put the two stretchers on the side going from the front leg to the back leg, and you put a stretcher down the middle. It really shouldn't mm-hmm. affect where your where your feet go. Right, like an H arrangement yeah. or like an alternating H arrangement mm-hmm. or like an X arrangement or th- there are different arrangements that you can uh, use to sort of alleviate that problem of your heels kicking the stretcher, right? Absolutely. Stretchers, while not being a necessity, I think stretchers, mm-hmm. in, in answering Andrew's question, do they add strength? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry to throw that at you guys but yeah I, I i think they do add strength yeah do they add measurable strength or are the mortise and tendon joints for the seat apron insufficient so you yes obviously they add strength but you're also saying that they um they're required pretty much if, if i was making chairs yes they'd be a requirement okay i mean i've not made a chair i've just made a bar stool so um i added them for you know because they're so long but so I'm not a chair expert. Uh, no, neither am I. All I know is that the chairs I've made in the past all had stretchers on them. And I can't really mm-hmm. imagine making chairs without stretchers on it, simply because of the racking. I made chairs and I didn't use stretchers. I used corner blocks because I didn't like the look of stretchers. And I felt that the, at least from the material that I read with, here's a good thing, you should read Jeff Miller's chair making and design, Andrew, because that would be a really good book for you to look at to understand maybe why you would want to use corner blocks over stretchers or corner blocks and stretchers or just stretchers. Uh, what is what does Jeff Miller know? <laughs> I don't know. He's a chair maker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. I went with uh, I went with corner blocks and no stretchers, and I know that Jeff has made chairs where he's done no corner blocks and stretchers, and he's made chairs with corner blocks and stretchers, and then you know there obviously we all know Windsor chairs have stretchers on yeah. them because what of was, what was his, uh, the way they're attached. So did he say he'd prefer to make chairs one way or the other? He didn't say. No, the book doesn't mention whether or not. Uh, he has a preference or if one is better than the other. Uh, he did say that uh, the most important if uh, in terms of traditional chair making is the mortise intended from the apron. If you're using an apron, obviously, Windsor chairs don't have aprons, right? So you have to have additional strength in yeah. some way. But then he also mentions that uh, corner blocks are, are a sufficient uh, measure to prevent the racking. Obviously, having stretchers also uh, increases durability. But he, he does mention that the 
mortise and tendon arrangement for stretchers are significantly, usually significantly smaller than the mortise and tendon on the apron of the chair. So the measurable difference, uh, while it is stronger, the important portion or the more uh, substantial strength is coming from the mortise and tendon uh, about the apron and not so much the stretcher. And, and I would agree with that. I would say that uh, the mortise and tendon around the apron is probably taking up a majority or the brunt of the, the racking in a chair. But yeah, definitely stretchers do help or corner blocks or, you know, a combination of the two. All right. There you go. You don't need to read the book now. <laughs> you should still read the book. <laughs> it's a really good book. And especially if you're going in the design and, and the book actually goes and outlines several different designs that, uh, that Jeff has outlined in his book. And I think if you're in the design phase, you should definitely check it out because it'll help you out a lot. All right. With that, Sean, you got the next question, buddy. All right. This is from Jesse from Beachland Furniture. Hey guys, I got a question about a workbench vise. I'm in the process of building a new workbench and I'm ready to mount the front vise. I have an old record style vise that I was going to use and mount to the apron, leaving it proud. However, everyone I see now mounts their vise inset using the bench apron as the rear jaw of the vise. Granted, these are all quick release Lee Valley style vices. Would you mount the vise proud or inset the vise? I found some info from Paul Sellers in favor of mounting it proud to avoid pinching fingers, but haven't found any info on people using vices that are flush to the aprons of the bench. By the way, this isn't my end-all be-all beautiful shaker Rubo bench. It'll probably last about five to seven years before I replace it. Thanks. Uh, this is a good question. And uh, I actually spent some time the other night looking into this exact question because I was making plans for a basic workbench build for um, my brother-in-law. And essentially, there are two ways to mount the vise that Jesse's talking about. You can mount it so that the back jaw is proud of the workbench apron, or you can mount the vise so that the rear jaw is flush with the apron by routing a pocket. Uh, there are pros and cons to both, in my opinion, uh, to leaving it proud or making it flush. Uh, I mean, you typically see these types of vices proud of the surface, the uh, the metal metal vices that he, that Jesse has, the old record record style vice. Uh, let me talk about mounting it proud to the surface. Uh, the main pro that I can think of is the installation being somewhat easier since you can just flip the top over and install some screws. Uh, now the con of having it proud is if you're wanting to edge joint or clamp along board, uh, you're going to have some racking side to side uh, since the device is, is normally proud, probably, I don't know, about an inch, inch and a half. Uh, so you'll have to shim the end of the board so that it doesn't rack up against the apron of the bench. Um, the con or the pro obviously is, you know, you, the installation's fast. The con is you may have some racking if you're, you know, dealing with really long boards. Uh, now, if you route a pocket and make the rear jaw flush with the apron, you won't have that issue, but you're going to add the, the con of the added complexities of the installation. Now, in my opinion, before I pass this off to the other fellows, I don't know. I, I just can't, I can't put my finger on it, but I'm just going to say that with the metal type vice, I would leave it proud. Paul Sellers says, leave it proud because it pinches his fingers. I mean, I saw some pictures on his blog about that. I mean, I've never pinched my fingers, but you know, I'm not a professional like Paul and he's been doing it a whole lot longer than I've been alive. Um, and Chris Wars has a blog post where he says you need to route it out and make it flush. So, hmm. you know, yeah. So it's up to you pretty much. <laughs> you got one guy saying do it one way and Chris saying do it the other. But at the end of the day, it's all about your style of work. And if you can work around the odd times that you're going to be clamping really long boards or, or large pieces that you can you can deal you can deal with the racking by putting a shim in place. Um, so 
I know this is absolutely no help, but if it were me, I'd probably leave it proud. Uh, wh- what about you? What, what would you guys do if you had this this type of ice? I, I did have that type of ice on my uh, workbench. I had an end vice on my old workbench. I had an end vice and a uh, side vice, which was uh, you know like the regular record metal vice, like he's talking about. I inset it just because it makes more sense. You know, regardless of what Paul Sellers or Christopher Schwartz says, do what feels right for you, Jesse. I mean, if the type of work you're doing and this is your only vice you have and you're going to be clamping long boards to that, it's much easier to have the vice inset. That way you can clamp it further down the the apron of the the workbench and help out Mm -hmm. with that a little bit. So. It really depends on the type of work you're doing and what you're going to be using the, the, the vice for. Again, I have all the respect in the world for Paul Sellers and Chris Schwartz, but they are not woodworking in your shop. You are. Yeah, well said. Uh, so I'm going to agree and disagree with both of you guys. Um, so you're going to agree with me and disagree with Sean. <laughs> And then agree with Sean and disagree with you guys. No, Let's not forget no, that. No. <laughs> so, uh, so I think actually, uh, I, I my preference is to inset the vice. However, if this is your first workbench and first vice, maybe try it proud first because I mean, ultimately, it's not going to hurt anything. Well, I don't know. Maybe it might might muck up the bottom, and you might have to you know redrill or whatever. You can always plug them up, but. The point is, is that if you're kind of stuck on time, you really don't want to feel like routing it out, although it's really not that hard to do, and you just don't want to go through that trouble, and you don't mind making like a shim or whatever for a longer board, then keep it proud. And again, it's all up to you what, you know, it's woodworking in your shop, and what Guy said is exactly right. It's all about what how you want it in your shop. If for some reason, you know, a month down the road, you're like, man, I, I just, I can't stand this vice being proud of the apron, then route it out. You can't, you, well, I mean, I guess you can add wood, but makes it, you know, a little harder, but you can always just take it away and, and, and inset the vice into uh flush with the apron. What, so. what I don't yeah, get about you. it, what Go I don't ahead. get about Jesse's question says, I found some info from Paul Sellers in favor of mining a vice product to avoid pinching fingers. I don't get the pinching yeah. fingers thing. What is that? I, I don't get that either. <laughs> I thought I was just being stupid. Because when he places the wood in the in the vise, he's holding it from underneath and he'll pinch his fingers. Like if he has a long board and part of it's in the vise, part of it's not, or a majority of it's in the vise, he's holding the board from underneath. Whereas if you have it proud of the surface, you've got that space between the, the jaw and the apron versus if you hold it from underneath and put it in the vise and clamp it, you can pinch your fingers. In other words, all you've got to do is grab the wood from the top or grab the wood from the side. And just that was, oh. that was the picture. I mean, typically... See, the reason why I'm, I would mount it proud is because two things that came came to mind. One is what if you mount it flush and you flatten your bench after two, three, four years? Mm, Isn't there a mm. potential of you hitting, like running out of room to mount it flush? I guess it depends on how you mount it because the way I mounted mine was I put spacers underneath so that the top of the iron part of the jaw was probably a half inch to three quarters of an inch below my workbench top. Okay. So see, this goes back to, in my opinion, this is why I said I would, I would do it. And this is just my opinion because at the end of the day, 
it's what like we're, we're all saying it's whatever jesse decides to do in his shop that works best for him this is why i said to leave it proud you're adding more complexities to do that than you would having to avoid shimming it if you're jointing like really long boards not you know like a five foot board you can clamp that in your vise and still edge join it i'm talking extremely long boards is where you're going to have potential racking because you can put a long board and Paul Sailors even has a picture of it of like a four or five foot long board and, and clamp it right up an edge joint and it's not going to move. So is it mm. worth adding the complex, the complexities of making it flush versus the odd times that you're going to need to shim it is the only reason I said, leave it proud. And that again, that's just me talking in my shop. If Jesse, you know, edge joints, 24 foot long boards every other day, not, not that long, but eight foot or nine foot or 10 foot long boards. Sure. Sure. But if he does yeah. it once every six months, is it really worth the extra effort to inset and shim it and all of that extra work versus flipping it over, screwing it in and, and get back to work? Yeah. I, I, I think it really depends on what he's doing out there. So, but like I said, you know, I, I like to overcomplicate the hell out of everything. <laughs> That's just the way I am. So I would inset it. <laughs> just just because it's 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 a more complicated, stupid way of doing it, I guess. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it was it's stupid because well, I, 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 I would mean. prefer you know to do it too. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I understand. I understand. Right now I've got an invoice and anything longer than uh twenty four inches is gonna rack on mine. So that's what I've got. Anyways, uh that's uh, hopefully that helps Jesse let us know what you end up going with. Uh guy, it's on to you. Oh, and I have the question queued up. When does ever ever cease? So this is from Douglas and this is, I don't think this is going to be a very deep question, but I'd like to hear what you got, what your guys' opinion is on it. And Douglas asks, uh, he says, I have a Makita trim router with a quarter inch upcut spiral bit routing a groove in the edge of a board and the collet keeps loosening the bit. I'm only taking one eighth inch, the one eighth inch deep passes. Say that 10 times quick. Not sure what the problem is. Any help would be appreciated. Now, I have an answer that I think is correct. And I, I guess I'd really <laughs> like to hear what your guys' answer is. Hui, do you have an answer for Douglas? And I want to see if yours jives with mine. I'm thinking here, he's got a collet that keeps loosening the bit. Yeah, the, My the collet thought keeps- would be... Yeah, the collet keeps loosening. Um, but he's qualified that, you know, it's, it's a quarter-inch upcut spiral bit, and he's routing mm-hmm. a groove in the edge of a board, and he's like taking very shallow passes. Could it have something to do with the fact that he's using a quarter-inch upcut spiral bit? <clears throat> I don't, I don't, Thank you for playing. I, I mean, I don't know. Sean? <laughs> um, so, Douglas, I'm going to need to know, is it unique to this to this bit? <laughs> Um, so this quarter inch upcut spiral bit is riding a groove on end grain and the collet keeps loosening the bit. Yes. I'm going to guess that it is vibration. Possibly. My answer to this, my answer That's a win to right this, there, folks. Yeah. My answer to this B is that you've got a dirty collet. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm serious. No, 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 no. no. I, 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 I think, I think. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, this is a, the reason I brought this question up is because it's a question. I get asked this question a lot. Really? Yeah. Not necessarily here or on Instagram or stuff like that, but like, like I've, like I've done some classes and stuff and people say, you know, I, uh-huh. I, my, my router bit keeps loosening up on me and it keeps 
moving. And it's like, hey, you need to clean your collet out. I wonder if it's a dull bit. No, it's, 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 I, I really truly believe that it's a dirty collet. I wasn't making that up or as a joke or anything, Sean. No, it just, it sounded funny. I know it sounds funny, but I mean, you, you need to blow out any, you know, take a Aragon and, you know, blow out any dust in there and clean it out with a, you know, some type of a solvent like a mineral spirits or a denatured alcohol or something and get that, uh, any pitch or resin that's built. Those collets get dirty. They really yeah. do, especially in a router table. But um, yeah, I, I, I yeah. honestly think it's a dirty collet. Yeah. So it sounds like what's happening potentially is the bit may be not brand new, maybe starting to go dull. It's routing in grain, which is causing vibration, which is causing that combined with a dirty collet to yeah. shift. Yeah. Okay. I'm on board with that. Sounds good. And we just saved another life. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I know that wasn't a very deep question, but I, I, I think it's relevant because I think a, a lot of guys, a lot of guys have that problem. It's like, why, why the hell is this happening? I had somebody ask me uh, why their router bit kept coming out, and I asked them, "Well, did you tighten it tight enough?" And the person went and checked, and he didn't tighten it tight enough. Well. I have a uh, personal experience with this because I seem to do all kinds of stupid stuff in my shop, but I was, um, you're, I think you're not I was, Sean. Oh, I know <laughs> they're out there whether or not they want to admit it, <laughs> but I had a, uh, a dull bit and I was doing a half inch deep mortise and the bit traveled up all the way through the three quarter of an inch thick piece and into my push pad because it was dull and just loosened up mm. and pulled right out. So don't do that folks. No. Don't do Your sharp bits. Yeah, sharp bits are a big help. Um, vibration can cause them to, to loosen up. But as far as how how much you tighten the bit down, I mean, you just got to really snug it. You don't really need to, to put, you know, 5,000 pounds of torque on the thing. Cause it's, it, oh, for sure. It's, it's harder to loosen something than it is to tighten something. So it's very easy to tighten. In other words, it's very easy to tighten something very well but it just makes it that much harder to, to loosen it up. Yeah. The instance that I was talking about was that the person literally did not tighten the collet. Like they just finger tightened it. They never even put a wrench on just it. Drop the, just drop the router bit in yeah. there and go, hey, I'm good. What what they were noticing was that the, the groove that they were routing, dado groove, whatever you want to call it, kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. It was like, uh, your bit is loose. <laughs> It's literally falling out of the falling out of the router as you're routing. And sure enough, that's exactly what was the problem. Here's a question for you all. Do you tighten your half inch collets tighter than your quarter inch or vice versa? Nope. No. All right. <laughs> I wanted to put that out there just in case anyone had that was driving in their vehicle and said, dang, I wonder what they do for their half inch collets. Do they tighten those any different? Well, we just answered that for you. I take a, a torque wrench. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> 40 pounds. Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That wraps up our first rounds of questions. And before we get to our second round of questions, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Maverick Abrasives. Maverick Abrasives is a family-run manufacturer of all things abrasives, such as sanding belts and sanding discs. 
Their manufacturing facility is located in lovely Anaheim, California, where knowledgeable abrasives and sanding experts are on call Monday through Friday to answer any sanding or finishing questions you may have. Check out their wide assortment of sanding discs on their website. Whether you use five-hole, eight-hole, or festool-hole patterns, they have you covered with the best prices on the web. And to top it off, they have free shipping on orders of $200 or more. So check out Maverick Abrasives for your sanding and finishing needs. So, we, I believe you have the next question. Okay, so this is from Adam P. And uh, just like in the last episode, uh, we didn't want to say his uh, last name because we didn't want to muck it up. But uh, he is a patron member, and this is actually the first question that he ever forwarded to us. So... I am writing with a question about joining and spring joints. I refurbished an old Atlas 6006 inch joiner. It's a beast, and I think I did a pretty good job getting everything aligned. Very sharp, new blades at the right height, but when I edge joint longer boards, 60 inches or more, the outfeed table of the jointer is only 26 inches. I do get a very small, wide arc or frown face, as he describes it, on the jointed edge. When I put two jointed boards edge to edge to make a panel, there is a small, about 132nd to a 16th of an inch gap in the center, but the ends of the boards are flush. I lamented this to a fellow woodworker, and he told me not to worry that it's a best practice to make a spring joint by leaving such a gap and closing it up via clamps during a glue-up. So my question is, is my friend right? Should I just go with the spring joint? And if he's not right, how can I calibrate my jointer so I can get a straighter edge? So he's not necessarily wrong, but my personal preference. So having a spring joint is not a bad thing. I mean, it's, it's actually a common practice to do a spring joint for panel glue ups. But me personally, I do not want my jointer to have any to pre producing any form of a gap or a frown face when I'm edge joining at all, because while it might be okay every now and then for an, an edged piece, I want my my boards to be completely straight. I mean, that's the reason why I'm, I'm jointing or, or milling in the first place. Is I want everything square and flat. So doing so, especially if you're, you know, face jointing is, is going to produce a frown along the face, right? So it's not something that I would necessarily want. And I do think you need to go ahead and calibrate and make sure that uh, you're not getting a spring joint all the time unless that's exactly what you want. That being said... Uh, another issue might be that you're you're jointing a longer board. So I would suggest if everything is calibrated properly to actually have some infeed and outfeed uh, support for your uh, for your boards. So that's my take on it. What do you guys think? What do you what do you think, guy? Well, a 32nd to a 16th of an inch gap in the center is not a spring joint. That is a huge freaking gap. I mean, a spring joint is a couple thousandths in the center, not a sixteenth of an inch. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The problem Adam has is he's got a small jointer, mm -hmm. six-inch jointer, and his board that he is using is more than twice the length of his infeed table. Mm -hmm. At work, we have a sixteen-inch long or sixteen-inch wide long bed jointer. I mean, this is a 4,000-pound machine. It's huge. Today, I was edge-joining 10-foot-long boards. Guess what? No no, uh, no gap. Oh, it's got a gap. It's impossible not to get a gap. 
Okay. Because the board is twice as long as the infeed table. So if you have a board that's got any type of small curve, well, you know, it's a, he's saying a crook or a frowny face on it, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to get both the beginning and the trailing edge of the board on the infeed table. Half of it is leaning off of it. Mm-hmm. So the board is tilting a little bit. If you've got, you know, and that's how I was t- telling uh, Christian, the guy I was working with today, I was like, okay, we've got these boards really good where there's only like maybe, you know, less than a 64th of an inch gap. Because I'm always talking about how you should be able to just push the boards together with your hands and the, the joint should just be perfect. Well, that's fine. I may be a four foot or a five foot board. But when you're dealing with a nine, a 10 foot board, it's very, very difficult to get that perfect. So we were dealing mm-hmm. with very small gap in the center. I'm like, you know, we're never going to get this perfect. Mm-hmm. So that's what Adam is dealing with. He's got a small short bed joiner and he's dealing with a long board. That's all it is. Right. Well, let's talk about how he can fix this. My recommendation to to Adam is if you've got a 16th of an inch gap in the center, what I would do is take like a, some people call it a door board, or if you have a track saw, try to cut a straight edge on the board before you put it on the joiner with a a circular saw. Right. Yeah. Good point. And then you've got a, a nice straight edge. It's not a jointed edge. It's not joint ready to, for a glue up. But now you have a straight edge to work with. And if the board is longer, there's going to be less chance of it dipping off the off the table when you're trying to feed it in. That's my recommendation. Sean, what do you got? Uh, I think you covered everything. Um, in-feed and out-feed support. And you're good to go. Yeah. But even if you put in-feed and out-feed support, you're never going to get it perfectly flush with the, the joiner beds. How so? You'll never get it perfectly flush. The in-feed and out-feed rollers? Yeah. It's always going to be a little bit off. It's never going to be perfect, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh. I mean, I had luck with it um, using in-feed and out-feed rollers on a big ash tabletop. A big ash top? Yeah. But then again, (laughs) I did use a track saw to clean one edge up first. So it was a- That probably makes a big difference. No, that was- um, No, I'm sorry. That was something else. Uh, Yeah, I did just in-feed and out-feed rollers. I mean, it was either that or- or use a, a, a track saw, but I did in-feed and out-feed rollers and it worked pretty pretty well for me. I use rollers as well for my big table, edge joining my most recent tabletop. Something else I've done is I've put the boards back to back and joined them both at the same time. That worked well for me as well. But would that necessarily alleviate the frowny face issue though? Um, it, you're, you're gonna, the boards will, hmm, maybe not. I think that would uh, that would alleviate maybe not a perfect 90 fence, right? Yeah, either way you go. I mean, if you did it, if you did do it that way and they did join together, you're still going to have, you're not going to have parallel edges, and it's going to be not a lot of fun. Well, there you go. I mean, you've got a really short joiner bed and a really long board, so uh, you might always have that issue if you're not at least first ripping a, a straight edge or relatively straight edge at first. Yeah, so. but all all of us have combo machines. And none of these machines are long bed by any stretch of the imagination. No. Anything that I'm jointing that's longer than maybe four or five feet long, I always straight line rip it with the track saw first. Because I know I'm never going to, if I'm doing edge joining, 
I know I'm never going to get a completely straight edge off that short infeed table. Mm -hmm. That's just me. Yeah, I guess I didn't think of a 60-inch board, a 32nd, 16th of an inch gap. That is significant. Yeah, Definitely, that's yeah. not a spring yeah, joint. That's significant. That's you not a spring a joint. You're right. That grat, through that through that <laughs> Yeah. You can I mean, make it a, a river table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can't make it a river. You can't call it a river table. Oh, I'm it's sorry. A, a uh, creek table. Yeah. yeah. We, we've sold a couple of those river tables at work. We don't call them river tables. We call them canyon tables. Do you really? <laughs> yeah. You're kidding. No. Oh, my goodness. Canyon tables. Uh-huh. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, you, got, you can't call them river tables. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make stuff like that up, man. It's crazy. Nope. Well, all right, Sean, you got the next question, man. All right. This is from Omer. I am a very green woodworker. I'm building a small side slash end table. I'll attach the top to the aprons and allow for wood movement. I want to add a shelf at about a third of the length from the top to the floor. I thought about attaching it to the legs. How would you guys do it? Thanks for the great podcast. I think we'll do a little round robin. I'll, I'll say one way and pass it off to you guys that way. I'm not saying all possible ways. Um, so I'll take a stab. Uh, the last end table that I made that had a shelf, I put aprons on the side so it looked like an H. And then on the shelf, I did a, um, I put a little tongue and groove, a groove on the aprons and a tongue on the shelf. And I made it so that the shelf fit between the front and the back legs so that it could expand and contract. That is one method in which I added the bottom shelf to a a side table. It's really simple to do. And um, it's probably why I did it, (laughs) but, and it also looks good. Uh, How about you, how would you uh, add a bottom shelf? What's your method? Maybe put a breadboard end on the shelf uh, portion of it and then just uh, do a mortise and tenon into the leg from the breadboard end. How about you, Guy? <laughs> what would you do? And that, and, and the breadboard end would allow the the uh, center panel to expand and contract, the shelf to expand and contract if it's solid. So the so. center shelf would fit between the front two legs and the rear two legs? Uh, yes. I'm trying to think, okay. visualize that, what you just said. Yeah, I think that's right. How about you, Guy? What, how would you attach? Well, I would do a lot like Sean just, just mentioned before, which is just a couple supports and then plop a shelf on top of it. The only problem is that, you know, you're going to have big gaps in the shelf between the shelf and the legs because you have to be able to to let the mm-hmm. let the thing do what it's got to do. Yeah. My recommendation for something like this, I just wouldn't add a shelf. That, that, <laughs> that, that would be my solution. I would, I would <laughs> plywood panel, plywood veneered panel. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. I just wouldn't add a shelf. <laughs> yeah, I like that method too. It yeah. works. It does. <laughs> but if you, but if you want to add a shelf, there's a couple of ways to do it. Um, I actually have a. Sorry for the promotion here, but I do have a video showing my method and pictures. I'll just say that. So if you're interested in checking that out, because uh, it was a commission piece and they wanted a bottom shelf. So I had to do it. I, I, I've seen a couple shelf designs like this where they've put the shelf in there, but they're, they're, they're put like the the supports like an H design like Sean was talking about, or even just the, the like an X going across between the, the mm-hmm. legs and the shelf doesn't go all the way to the legs. Right. Right. So it's kind of like sits in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Oh. And that way you don't have to worry about mm-hmm. expansion and contraction, but you also don't have to worry about gaps. Yeah. Does that make sense? 
Mm-hmm. So that's that's another way I may do it. I, I I would consider doing it. But I've done this once before, long time ago, and I had the 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 shelf push the legs apart. Really? Yeah, that was a long time ago. Long time ago. So now, Sean, now that I'm actually had a little bit of time to think about it uh, with the breadboard ends, excuse me, the, the panel would sit between the legs side by side and then the breadboard end would go front to back on so that the panel, you could have it or the shelf flush to the legs uh, in the front and the panel itself, if the panel was going a long way side to side, could expand and contract forward and back. Am I making sense there? Yeah, I saw I saw a video where Matt Cremona did that many years ago. Uh, on a coffee table, right? Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. Yep. So there's a method that you can use there. Well, I think, Guy, uh, moving on to your last question, man. So this is from Ron. And Ron says, love the show. My hobbyist shop is a 24 by 30 garage, and I'm looking to upgrade the dust collection. I initially looked at a big three horsepower dust collector and plumbing the whole shop with four and six inch ducting. Now I'm looking at getting two or three Grizzly G0785, I don't know what that is, or Rockwell Rockler wall mount units and keeping each near one to two machines and not running expensive and cumbersome ductwork all over my shop. It seems like for about $1,200, I can have a pretty effective setup by going this way instead of one big dust collector. Am I missing something? Do you see any disadvantages of going with multiple smaller units mounted close to my machines? I see nothing but advantages using multiple smaller units mounted close to your machines, Ron. There's no ducting involved. We've, I think we've talked about this before where you could have like a one and a half horsepower, two horsepower dust collector and just run one hose off of it and move it from machine to machine. And in some cases, you could just have a dedicated dust collector for one machine. I've actually thought of doing that because mm-hmm. I've got, I don't want to have a, I've got a pretty powerful dust collector. Three horsepower. Is that right? Three horsepower. And I've got to run a, a, a hose over to my table saw. I was thinking of getting one of those little Rockler units, just shoving under my table saw, because mm-hmm. I've got an electrical drop from the ceiling, and I could run it off that. I wouldn't have any hoses on my floor anymore. So yeah, you know, it it, it really goes to your shop setup, Ron. But if it makes more sense to have one or two, you know, hundred and twenty volt these smaller dust collectors. I say go for it, man. What do you guys think? I think he should go for it. Yeah. If he's not wanting to have to run all the ducting or just have a centralized machine that he has to run hose to and he has the space for it, I I think maybe the only thing is that like it might take a little bit more wall space for, you know, two, three individual units. But I mean, these things are not that expensive. No, but they can actually, you know, like a table saw, it can sit under your wing. Right. Exactly. You know, a lot of this stuff, it doesn't have to be mounted to the wall. It can sit on the floor. It could definitely be beneficial if his planer and or jointer were uh, somewhat stationary and he never really moved it. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, and that was wall mounted. That that would definitely be beneficial as well. I think he'd probably have to empty that bag a lot, especially when he's uh, yeah. 
a planing and jointing because, man, that's a lot of chips. But you're going to have to empty a bag a lot anyway if you have a one and a half horsepower more stationary unit and, and the main ducting. So, yeah, there's two things that came to mind. One is if you're going for these wall mount units, they're going to have a small bag, which means if you're milling a lot of uh, lumber, you're going to have to empty it uh, quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, which it, it just depends on your workflow, which is, you know, we preface every question by saying that it depends on your workflow. Yeah. You know, if you only mill up 50 board feet a year, it's not that big of a deal. But if you're doing that every day, it's going to become an issue. I like the idea of uh, doing two or three separate units. Again, depends on your workflow. Yeah. The other thing is if you're going to go with two or three units, um, you're either going to, in my opinion, it, it may not be that big of a deal, but in my head, I would probably have three individual remotes turning each of them on and I would leave the remote in their general station or general area. Uh, or mm. you could get the units that, um, the little devices that when you turn your machine on, yeah. the DC will turn on. They got several different ways that you can, that you can tackle that, or you can just bend over or flip it on. Um, but I don't see any downsides other than the smaller bags. That's all that I can think of. If it works for you, do it. Yeah. I said it really depends on your, I don't know if I'd say necessarily your workflow. I think it depends on your layout of your shop. Yeah. I know it wasn't a very yeah. deep question, but <laughs> yeah, I think it depends. It depends on the layout. Yep. Absolutely. And I, I would look at how much you, maybe for the planer and joiner, I would probably, if you can get a larger machine with a larger bag, that's still small and wall mountable. That's what I would do. I'm sure you could find a, a larger bag. Maybe, maybe if they, you know, he asks Grizzly to buy some of those replacement bags for some of the bigger machines, you know, yeah. or you could put a, uh, a trash can separator in front of it. Yeah. True. True. That might help a lot too. Is that is that it? I think that's it. Is that what? Is that the last question? Yeah. All right. Are we done? Can I go? Can I go to sleep now? If you want. Sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I th- we did this on the last podcast, and people seemed to really like it, where we just didn't get into a twenty-minute conversation about what we're doing in our shop, but just a, a short you know, a couple minutes of what we're doing in our shops because not everybody follows us on Instagram, although they should, Oh, especially, especially <laughs> me. So Sean, I'll need what, to do that then. Yeah. It's <laughs> good, good one, one, Sean. Um, what do you got going on in your shop there, Sean? Uh, I just finished, finished a, um, a sharpening station cabinet box thingy. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Thank you. Can I have it? Yeah. Sure. Nice. Um, $600. No, oh. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Uh, now I started a shop cabinet and it's going to be made out of scrap cherry. Uh, so I started the cutting the finger joints on that today using the dado stack. Hope to have that done this weekend. Uh, it's going to have railing style panel doors and it's going to be pretty nice for a shop cabinet, but it's scrap wood and it's my shop, so I want it to look good. Mm-hmm. But that's what I have going on in the shop. Uh, Guy, what about you? Nothing. I haven't been on the shop for a couple weeks because I haven't had much time to go out there. Um, I, I'm working on that that toolbox, that tool mm-hmm. chest, but I haven't got much done on it in the last couple of weeks. I just haven't had time to go out there and do it. I'm doing some other stuff around the house. You know, I, I've got a lot going on at work which is woodworking. So I started building eight picnic tables and 16 benches, but these are not like outdoor crappy picnic benches. These are furniture grade picnic benches for an indoor atrium kind of thing. 
So they're pretty nice. They're pretty, they're pretty fancy, actually. What kind of wood? Ash. Okay. We're, I'm working on those. We've been working on these tables for a architectural design firm. Been working on some large conference tables that are large sections of tables that get hooked together. And uh, today I started working on a walnut table that is going to be nine feet, excuse me, eight and a half feet by about five and a half feet wide. Gosh. Weird, weird dimensions. Four and a half feet wide, excuse me. So it's going to be a big, heavy beast. And nice. uh, that's why I was saying, you know, we were talking about the planing or the yeah. jointing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've witnessed this firsthand today. That's what it is. With long boards, even with our long bed 16-inch joiner, it's very hard to get a, a, a perfectly straight edge. It's pretty damn close, but it's not perfect. Right. What about you, Hui? Well, I haven't been doing much this week, particularly because- uh, What about last week? Well, last week, I finally uh, did the shaping of the edge on the drop leaf table that I've been working on. That used a pretty big router bit. That was a two and a half inch diameter router bit. And uh, just like, uh, you know, you had recommended from the last episode, well, I guess two episodes ago with those big router bits, uh, you know, do a practice one first, get confident with it and then do do it on the actual workpiece. And that's exactly what I did. I built up my confidence with just using that bigger bit. And uh, when it came down to uh, routing it on this uh, on this apile, was fully confident, didn't have any issues, no tear out, no burning. Was that, was that for an edge treatment? or the Yeah, wood? it was for an edge treatment. Yep. Oh, it, okay. It's one of, I guess it, it's uh, Infinity's classic bit. Uh, it has like this little tiny fillet and then a parabolic curve on the edge. It's, it's pretty neat. It's a, it's a really nice bit actually. Uh, it's a really nice shape and I'll probably use it on some other things as well, but, but it is a big bit. And um, at first I was going to try to hand route it, but then I realized that the opening on my router was well, exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. It was gonna, I was like, well, I guess I have to use it on a router table. I have no choice. So, so yeah. that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Most of those, what I call barbs are a big ass router bit. <laughs> like the big cope and stick joint, the big yeah. cope and stick bits and a lot of the uh, table edge bits. Yeah. Those are all designed to go on a router table or a shaper. Yeah. yeah. So. I, I, I realized that when I put it in, I was like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you probably don't, you probably don't want to put something like that in a handheld router and try to hog off that material on there. Yeah. Especially not in a trim router. <laughs> a trim router. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was my big my big router, but uh, but thankfully, well, what, uh, what, what, what's your big router? Uh, so I have a three and a quarter horsepower Freud. Like it's a really old router. It's really really old. Uh-huh. It's I guess the equivalent to like the Festool twenty two hundred. Uh, you know what I'm talking about the the big Festool yeah. router. Yeah. So it's a, it's it's equivalent to that in terms of uh of horsepower output. So, so I used that and I was like, Oh, I don't think this is made for this. And uh, I probably shouldn't do this because it doesn't fit in this. So uh, before I could even turn (laughs) it on, it wouldn't work. So that's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. It won't fit. Yeah. It's like, "Ah, if it doesn't, if it don't fit, you must quit. You must quit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, 
I think uh, that's going to do it for this show. And we'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And, of course, we do truly appreciate the uh, support and feedback. And remember that this podcast is here to answer questions from you guys, the woodworking community. So if you do have woodworking questions and you'd like the panel of experts, which oh. is basically me and these two guys. <laughs> well. Uh, I'm the panel. You guys are just the laugh track. Oh. You can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife, and you can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. And where can you be found, We You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. Uh, Sean, where can we find you? Simplecove.com. All right. Awesome. And while I got everybody here, I want to plug Sean's new podcast. Did we talk about this last episode? I think I briefly threw it in last second. Okay. I don't know if I said what it was, but Sean's yeah. got a new podcast out and he interviews other woodworkers. He's got some really, really solid interviews with some really good guys. So I, I have, what's the name of the podcast, Sean? It is the Simple Cove podcast. Very original. But the key is I only interview people that submit stuff to simplecove.com because I've got over 1,300 projects from members submitted to the site. So that's the key. So many talented folks. So I take the time to interview people like Guy, uh, Gary, Greg Ryeski, Walt Primrose, and on and on and on and on, uh, Seth Miller. Uh, there's this guy named Hui that will be on uh, next season. Yes. Well, he's got to submit something to Simple Cove, doesn't he? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. So lazy. I'll, I'll submit know. those table Jeez. and chairs. But uh, but uh, also to continue to plug your podcast, it's wow, very different than a lot of other podcasts because it's very project centric where you talk about yeah. a specific project. And I really like that. Talk about a specific huh. project that these makers have made and how they went about tackling some challenges or how they designed things like that. So yeah, that's really under the hood and it's pretty cool. Well, thanks guys. I appreciate that. Yeah. So anyways, guys, thanks so much. And, uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Talk to you in a couple. See Bye. you later. Bye.